optimal minimal. At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I answer your personal question? Now it is in a perfect time. What if I did the opposite? I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over metal endoskeleton. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I get asked all the time what I would take if I could only take one supplement. The answer is invariably Athletic Greens. I view it as all-in-one nutritional insurance. I recommended it, in fact, in the four-hour body. This is more than 10 years ago, and I did not get paid to do so. With approximately 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, you'd be very hard-pressed to find a more nutrient-dense and comprehensive formula on the market. It has multivitamins, multimineral greens complex, probiotics and prebiotics for gut health, an immunity formula, digestive enzymes, adaptogens, and much more. I usually take it once or twice a day just to make sure I've covered my bases if I miss anything I'm not aware of. Of course, I focus on nutrient-dense meals to begin with. That's the basis. But Athletic Greens makes it easy to get a lot of nutrition when whole foods aren't readily available. From travel packets, I always have them in my bag when I'm zipping around. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving my audience a special offer on top of their all-in-one formula, which is a free vitamin D supplement and five free travel packs with your first subscription purchase. Many of us are deficient in vitamin D. I found that true for myself, which is usually produced in our bodies from sun exposure. So adding a vitamin D supplement to your daily routine is a great option for additional immune support. Support your immunity, gut health, and energy by visiting athleticgreens.com slash TFS. You'll receive up to a year's supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your subscription. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash TFS, as in Tim Ferriss show. athleticgreens.com slash TFS. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm -mm -mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Hello, boys and girls, ladies and germs. This is Tim Ferriss, and welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show, where it's my job to deconstruct world-class performers of all different types, to tease out the habits, routines, tactics that set the extraordinary apart from the average. The objective being to really pull out the details you can apply. Now, after more than 250 conversations or close to 300 episodes now, you and I start to spot patterns and themes across every possible domain. A lot of the people who are the best at what they do, regardless of where it is, tend to do a lot of the same things or focus on the same things. So this episode contains some of the best lessons I've learned about sleep, recovery, and regeneration, where I have really applied my focus more than almost any other foundational pillar in my life. Why? Because if you get sleep and recovery right, it magnifies everything else incredibly, uh, to a much greater extent than, say, even diet or exercise, I find. So getting sleep and recovery right is critically important. The recommendations that we'll cover include people like strength coach Charles Poliquin, who's trained athletes from 20 different plus sports, including Olympic gold medalists, NFL All-Pro players, Stanley Cup champions, and much more. I don't do the four-hour work week, but I like to do the four-and-a-half-hour work day. 
It also includes tips from Amelia Boone. She has been called the Michael Jordan of obstacle course racing and is the most decorated athlete in what they call OCR. Maybe I can become a fat adapted athlete because for longer races, I didn't want to have to like rely on gels and, gels, and right. stuff like that because after a while it can, it can be too much on your stomach. I then talked to comedian Mike Birbiglia, who has a very particular nighttime ritual that has helped him learn how to sleep after many, many problems. The biggest thing is, is, is getting off of social media, getting off of Twitter and Facebook. And Dr. Peter Atia, one of my favorite docs on the planet, shares his best lessons and takeaways related to rest. At the time, I literally said to my wife, like, I'm going to go get a gastric bypass. And she was like... <laughs> You are the most ridiculous human being that's ever lived. So without further ado, let's get started. And I will kick it off with a few points of my own. Uh, I have been a lifelong insomniac, specifically with onset insomnia. So certain people have trouble getting to sleep. I'm in that camp or had been for many, many decades. Other people have trouble staying asleep. I'm not in that camp, but a lot of the recommendations will apply. And there are a few things in the last 12 months in particular that I have reapplied and reevaluated and continue to recommend. There are a few things right off the bat. Number one, a white noise machine of some type, like a Marpac Dome, M-A-R-P-A-C-D-O-H-M, device, which some hotels at the higher end have started to include in rooms specifically because they help sleep so much in my experience. Then cooling. Temperature is probably the single most important variable in sleep conditions and certainly sleep onset. For me, that means as cold as I can tolerate, often around 65 degrees Fahrenheit. Then if we want to look at the downstream effects on mental health or stability of sleep timing, I recently had a conversation with Ray Dalio, who is the founder of the largest hedge fund in the world, Bridgewater Associates. They manage about $160 billion in assets. And he shared with me how his son, who suffers from bipolar disorder, or I should say manic depression, could be labeled any number of ways, much like yours truly, has found that his symptoms are mitigated tremendously by going to bed by 11 p.m. I can corroborate this. As a lifelong night owl, my stability tends to be much more under control, much more even keel when I go to bed by 11 p.m. And there are a few things that also assist across the board in my experience. And again, not a doctor, don't play one on the internet, but something called N-acetylcysteine, N-A-C is how it's often abbreviated, and lithium orotate in very, very, very low doses. So we're talking about five milligrams here. I found to be extremely helpful for sleep and also just general uh, mental well-being. Last, I've experimented with polyphasic sleep, which means fragmenting your sleep into shorter periods with interspersed rest. There are many different formats, the most infamous of which is probably the Uberman protocol, which requires a mere 2.5 hours or so of total rest per day. But you have to take many, 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 many naps in order for that to function. And if you miss one of your naps, woe unto thee, because you are going to have at least two days of uh, complete zombie state. Uh, so it is not for people with significant others or 
uh, social obligations or ambitions of any type, generally speaking. But Matt Mullenweg, for instance, who is the CEO of Automatic and is thought of as the lead developer of WordPress, which now powers something like 27, 28% of the entire internet, did the vast majority of his coding in what he would call his most productive year while following polyphasic sleep. I tend to do very well with monophasic sleep, which is normal, what you think of as normal. So eight hour block of sleep, say from whatever it is, midnight to 8am. However, I have found I function best across the board physically and mentally if I get around 7.5 hours, I know it's very specific, seven and a half hours of sleep at night and then another one and a half hours, so 90 minutes, which is one ultradian rhythm, around three or four p.m., whenever possible. And that reinvigorates me to such an extent. The 90 minutes is very important. 60 does not do it for me, nor does 30. So 90 minutes will allow me to put in, if I so desire, an entire additional equivalent of a work shift, like seven or eight hours without fatigue. It's pretty phenomenal. So let's then move on to more tips on sleep and restfulness from other folks that I hope you find extremely valuable, or at least as valuable as I have. Charles Poliquin. Let's start with Charles. Charles at Strength Sensei on Twitter has a wealth of knowledge related to training, nutrition, and supplementation. The guy is an encyclopedia. He has authored more than 600 articles and written eight books, including what I believe is his latest, a very short gem entitled Arm Size and Strength, The Ultimate Guide. And you should check out Charles and his arms, I kid you not. Uh, NHL guys ended up listening to him because they saw what he looked like in person. When Charles and I had our conversation, I asked him which supplements he uses for improving sleep. And I should also update this by noting that I, in the last few weeks, have been experimenting with something that he produces called Yin Reserve, which includes uh, several different uh, components that he alludes to in this conversation. Question comes from Daniel Matthews Kazimirchuk, difficult Irish name. Which supplements do you currently use for improving sleep? Personally, I'm a big fan of magnesium threonate. I take six capsules at bedtime mixed with two grams of theanine, T-H-A-N-I-N-E. I will post a page to where to get these uh, ingredients on the website. The next question comes from Marcus Beamer. There are many things you might regret, but what's the thing that comes to mind most often? Well, what would I change if I could do it again? I, I wish the four-hour week would have been published when I started my career. People tell me often, you are very lucky. I got very lucky by working 20 hours a day for years on end. So when you work that many hours, and that doesn't include the training, so... For years, for about eight months out of the year, I would only sleep three hours a night. I would say that's my biggest mistake. I said yes too often, and I should have been concerned more with the quality of the athletes I trained. The problem was is that when I would get hired, I would get the whole national team. Once I established credibility of being consistent with results, when I would negotiate with national team, I would tell the national team, these are the guys I'll pick, these are the guys I will train. So it would have saved me time on writing programs, administrating programs, monitoring programs, teaching technique. But you need to have a reputation before. So I spent a lot of time doing that. 
what I've learned over the last few years is that you get known by the jobs you turn down, not the jobs you accept. A few months ago, Ellen Maroulis won the gold in Olympic wrestling for women. First time in America did so. For weeks, I've been asked to do seminars, write books, take on more national team athletes, train foreign teams. And I said no to all one of these requests. Why? Because I'm really geared up. I don't do the four-hour work week, but I like to do the four-and-a-half-hour work day. And, you know, one thing I do regularly is I take a week off a month to rest, to read, and I take three months vacation a year. Probably having a child was probably the best thing for me to learn how to prioritize things. So I really start to cut back on the amount of work uh, once I had my daughter. But the biggest mistake I've ever done was to work far too much. Now you got guys like Gary Vaynerchuk will say you need to hustle. You do, but you should still favor quality over quantity. And if you want to understand the concept better, I strongly suggest you read The One Thing and to read The 4-Hour Workweek. It's just a mental outlook to what you do. The next question is from Jonathan Anderson. Thanks to Charles, I'm now big into omega-3s to keep my autoimmune in remission. Dr. Barry Sears says 3 to 1 EPA to DHA. I'm taking that ratio out at a greater expense. Is it worth it? Should everyone go on it? Well... Dr. Guignot, unfortunately passed away a few years ago, was probably one of the smartest guys in that topic. What we know is that it's actually better to vary the types of fish oil. There's an axiom you should respect, is that the more you're dealing with inflammation, the higher the EPA ratio to DHA should be. So a lot of brands will sell you a 6 to 1 ratio. And that will bring down the inflammation better than the 3 to 1 ratio, actually. If you're concerned with brain... So let's say if you have ADD, ADHD, borderline personality, uh, all the studies on brain disorders show that a high DHA omega-3 product is better. So usually you want an 8 DHA to EPA to 1 EPA ratio. But there's no magical fish oil. And the other thing we know a lot from research, it's better to take products like... Uh, uh, omega-3 avail from Designs for Health, who has also mixed in uh, D1, uh, D3, sorry, K1 and K2 into the product because those actually increase absorption. You don't need as much large quantity. And of course, you supplement this important fat-soluble vitamins. The next question is from Roddy Lee. And he asked me, you're not a big fan of uh, foam rolling. Isn't foam rolling a massage? Thing, my beef against foam rolling is that it would be trying to uh, build a bridge one pebble at a time. It takes far too long. So there's such a thing as the principle of training economy. I mean, Tim is big on that, whether you read The 4-Hour Body or any of his books. It's like you have to have maximum return least amount of time. So people waste tremendous amount of time foam rolling. The amount of time they waste on foam rolling could be trying to get uh, flexible could be done in a good 20 minute uh, active release session or rolfing technique or the voila method there's a lot of stuff out there that exists to uh, get rid of adhesions and improve range of motion so and let's say if you have a good 
active release practitioner and you're form rolling because you have a tight shoulder, if the guy does a good job, and let's say you're the worst case scenario, you're about as flexible as a crowbar, within five treatments, you'll have 100% range of motion. And if you're a complete certified idiot, you will still maintain those gains for six weeks. So that's uh, six months, I'm sorry. So in my opinion, to go see a, a very good soft tissue practitioner and invest the, the time and money into that will save you all these countless hours of foam rolling because it will, you will have the results and it'll be more permanent if you see a soft tissue therapist. The next question is from Morgan Brown. If you only had to pick one important factor between sleep, food, and exercise, which would you pick and or how would you prioritize them? Well, Morgan, that's like asking me, for optimal health, should I prioritize my liver or my heart or my brain or my adrenals or my kidney? All of those are important. If you don't have a brain, well, forget. If you don't have a heart, forget. If you don't have a liver, you're not going to live very long. So you can't prioritize so much. Let's say if we look at prisoners at club fed, they can sleep as much as they want. Is this sleep restful? Probably not because maybe your roommate wants to kill you. The food, food is prison food, so it's not the greatest, but they do have plenty of opportunity to exercise and they have weight rooms. So in that case, you could argue people can get a good physique. And if you look at the book of JLL Strong by Josh Bryant, some pretty good physiques were built behind bars. But then again, you say to the guys, we'll make you safe and then we'll give you paleo foods. Well, these guys will grow a lot. I'm not sure taxpayers would agree with that thing, but the, you can't prioritize them. You can't say, I'm just going to sleep to muscle growth, or I'm just going to exercise to muscle growth, or I'm just going to eat to muscle growth. You need all three. Next up is Amelia Boone, who you can find on Instagram, arboone11, A-R-B-O-O-N-E-11, or I think she's just Amelia Boone on Twitter. Amelia has more than 50 podium finishes in obstacle course racing and is widely considered the most decorated in the sport. And I'll give you just a few examples of her finishes. In the 2012 World's Toughest Mudder Competition, which lasts 24 hours, she finished second overall out of 1,000 plus competitors. Keep in mind that those competitors are probably 80, 90% male. All right, so second overall. This was ahead of every uh, single competitor except for one male who ended up winning the whole thing, and he beat her by a mere eight minutes. She won the 2004 World's Toughest Mudder eight weeks after knee surgery. She's a beast in the best way possible. Amelia is also a three-time finisher of the so-called death race, which uh, not surprisingly is, has been discontinued. The name tells you all you need to know. And she dabbles in ultra running in her spare time. She's also a full-time attorney at Apple, by the way. And as someone who pushes her body to the limits, she's learned the importance of rest and how to make the most of it. What what does your nutrition look like? Uh, and <laughs> no, we were, we were were you serious earlier when I asked you about breakfast? Yes. All right, well, what was your answer? We were doing a sound check, and I asked her what she had for breakfast. What was your answer? Pop tarts. Pop tarts. <laughs> um, no, that's actually so. Pop tarts has become kind of this like 
running joke um, in the obstacle racing community with me because when I won the Spartan Race World Championships in 2013, I was so far ahead. I was like 20, 30 minutes ahead of the next woman. And the race director yells out at me. He goes, Millie, what'd you have for breakfast this morning? And I'm like, Pop-Tarts. And I actually did randomly that day because they're a really <laughs> good source of easy, easy, easily digestible carbs. Millie? Is, it, what? is that what you said? Or did you say your full name? Sorry, he said, I heard he said, Sorry, he said oh. Amelia. Oh, okay, got it. Sometimes I can't say my own name. Um, and uh, so it kind of became this thing that like, I would just like pre-race ritual um, that it would be like a good luck thing to like sure. have a Pop-Tart because I'm, I'm a really big person into superstition. And um, it's kind of grown from there. And now I see like I was at... I was at a race the other weekend and like everyone around me was eating pop tarts. <laughs> and I'm like, what have I started? Like what? And then everyone like posts these pictures on Instagram of them eating pop tarts and like they tag me in it. Yeah. And I'm like, oh my God, I've created a monster. <laughs> well, this actually could be a, an incredible opportunity for you to do whatever you want. Because I remember watching Pumping Iron and Arnold Schwarzenegger's yeah. talking about the guys who'd come up to him and ask him for advice and he'd give them the wrong advice. Devices. And he would like tell them to go into the shower at the gym and like scream while they're posing. So you could you could actually right. you could pull an incredible April Fool's joke, but announce it a year later right. after everyone has already embraced it. I know. It's, I, so now I'm like, okay, well, what's the next thing? Like, what's the you know? What other superstitions do you have? Um, not limited to racing necessarily. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm one of those people that so it's the same, like. I will wear the same sports bra. Like, so we race pretty much in like sports bra and like compression shorts. Cause you want as little clothing to like hold down the mud as possible. So I'll wear the same, you know, if I did well in a race, like I'll wear the same outfit for like the next race. Um, mm -hmm. and especially like the same headband. Um, and then if I don't do well, then that one gets discarded, you know? And so it's, it's that kind of like your typical, mm -hmm. um, sports stuff. Um, I actually have, this is kind of embarrassing, but a small little stuffed dog that travels with me to all races. And, um, because I'm typically by myself in really cheap, sketchy hotels, mm -hmm. um, because these races are like in the middle of nowhere. Um, so it's like my little guard dog. <laughs> How big is the stuffed dog? Oh, it like fits in the palm of your hand. <laughs> Where did you get that? It was given to me as, as a gift, as a protection, as a, protect, as a, gar, as, a guardian, as a, as a guard dog. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's just, it's, it's silly. Um, it's silly stuff like that. Um, but You're yeah. new, outside of pop tarts. Yeah. What do uh, I actually eat? <laughs> yeah. What is, what is your, let's just say your four weeks out from a race. Yeah. What is your, what does a day of food look like for you? Uh, honestly, like I, it's, it's one of those things I've struggled with that I've, I've tried every, like I tried to do paleo. I tried to be like, maybe I can become a fat adapted athlete because for longer races, I didn't want to have to like rely on gels, gels and, right. and stuff like that. Because after a while it can, it can be too much in your stomach, but I just never, I'm never going to be the paradigm of good eating of like, and, and, um, I couldn't, couldn't stick with like you know, um, the whole, like, you know, trying to, I couldn't go far enough into like the fat adaptation. Like it was just miserable. Um, I like ice cream way too much. 
Um, <laughs> Somewhat so, contraindicated for ketosis and yeah, fat adaption. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Much to my chagrin. At, at a certain point, I think I realized I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm performing well. Um, I'm winning races. So why change if it gets to the point where I'm not doing performing then then I'll take another look at my diet and Mm -hmm. and switch it but at this point it's like I run so much I put in so much you know time that I'm like whatever I enjoy food and I'll eat kind of whatever I want uh if if we were to look at say the world's toughest mutter yeah what do your routines look like you said you're a a creature of habit as am Mm -hmm. I the hours before the competition, let's just say right. like the day of, what are your routines? Um, so I always get up like super early before, well, I get up super early in general every morning. Um, What's super early? So my alarm typically goes off a, like right around 4 a.m. Um, so. <laughs> you, that's why you didn't flinch when I was, we were talking about Jocko Willink, the <laughs> SEAL commander. I'm like, and he wakes up at four, yeah. zero response. I'm like, uh oh, another one. Here we are. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, 4 a.m. Um, and uh, so actually on race days, it's almost like I sleep in a little bit. <laughs> but, <laughs> when, do, when do the races start typically? Um, they generally will start. World's Toughest Mudder is a little bit different. That one starts at 2 in the afternoon now. But um, like just a regular obstacle course race will generally be like 7.30 is the, I is got the starting time. So that starts at 2 p.m. So let's use that example. You wake up at 4. Right. Oh, yeah. Then I drive myself crazy for the next however many hours twiddling my thumbs. <laughs> <laughs> what, what other type of uh, body prep uh, or mental prep do you do? Yeah, I generally use um, the distraction technique. Mm-hmm. So I try to not think about really because I can sit there and make myself miserable over and over, like like picturing the race or whatever. But I find it helpful. Actually, um, I actually do a lot of work in the mornings before races. Um, so I'll catch up on emails. Um, I'll do things from like my attorney life, um, and um, then in terms of, like body prep. I, you know, I do a lot of like foam rolling, mobility, things like that. Um, the older I get, the more I realize like I can't just like jump out of bed in the morning and like you know, be spry as a chicken. So <laughs> you're 32. Is that right? 32. Am I 32. Right? Yeah. 32. So, so I would imagine you still have a couple of good years left in you, but yes, the, sometimes the, it feels a lot worse <laughs> though. Let me tell you. The, the mobility work that you do, what, yeah. what, what is that? What does that actually look like in, in detail? Um, so I generally carry like an arsenal of every single, like from a, a golf ball, a lacrosse ball, a softball, a foam roller. Um, and so I'm really focused on loosening up hips, loosening up hamstrings. Um, and, Every single different little torture device has, you know, it's the golf ball is for the foot. Mm -hmm. Um, The lacrosse ball works well on the glutes. You know, the softball is great for the hamstrings. Um, So I'm just, you know, getting the muscles kind of warmed up and loosened and prepped. Um, And um, I do, I actually, from a lot of various nagging injuries that I've always had, I have like little physical therapy routines that I always do too, you know, like 
to get your glutes activated and, and things like that. What type of movements do you do for glute activation? Uh, there's this fantastic exercise called Jane Fonda's that if Jane anybody's Fonda's. ever been in. Are these for physical... like glute mean? Or these... Oh yeah, yeah. Glute mean <laughs> where you're sitting there and you're like, man, I should really have leg warmers on right now. So the, you're talking about, is this like the bent leg sort of, uh, the, Reverse thigh master? Pretty much, yeah. yeah. It's the reverse thigh master. On, on your so, side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and like variation, like doing fire hydrants like that yeah. too, you know, like a dog lifting his legs. There's all super sexy things that people <laughs> like. Like if you if you do them in a gym, people are like, oh God, there's that girl. Well, I tell you, I think that you probably get more attention doing fire hydrants than I do, at least <laughs> unless I'm in a gym in the Castro, which right. it might be a similar experience. Uh and do you use any other modalities for prep? Do you use any stim? Do you use anything like that pre-race or is that um, set aside for other, other purposes? Pre-race, not so much. No, that's mm -hmm. more like recovery, like recovery, all like compression boots and, um, stem. Now are compression boots, the compression socks or are these actual boots, the boots that inflate, you uh, know, and right. like the air pressure chambers that, mm -hmm. um, you know, like kind of like flush out, supposedly flush out lactic acid. Mm -hmm. So, um, that's, but, and that's post-race that would be post-race. Yeah. So, so, well, let's talk about post-race then. So in terms of facilitating recovery, so you finish the race Yeah. and is it true that you have not slept for days on end after races or is that an exaggeration? No, it, it is true. So any long race that I've done, like world's toughest matter is a 24 hour race. Um, I've done other races that are, longer 48 that are 60 hours. Um, and I feel like it's, I can't sleep afterwards and you feel like you should be able to, you're like, wow, I was just up for three days straight, um, running around in the woods, but my mind, your body is so physically exhausted, but my mind is still on so much like on overdrive that I just, I can't. So, I mean, for instance, this year, um, after world's toughest mutter, we, all went, there was a group of us staying at a house, um, sat around, we're drinking beers, watching football game. And I was like, man, I should like really be getting drunk right now or something like that. Because like I'm drinking I've been running around in a wetsuit all night long. I'm like, I don't feel anything. Like I don't feel any effects of the booze or anything like that. I was like, it just must be this adrenaline still pumping through mm -hmm. me. Um, did other people have the same, a similar experience or is that unique to you? I think it, no, because everyone else just kind of passed out and went to bed. <laughs> okay. So I was like, hey, guys, let's say, okay, everyone's asleep right now. Cool. And when, and when you cross the finish line yeah. uh, as such, you're done, what type of recovery starts? What are, the, what are the actions that you take in the hours following the race? So I think one of the most important things that people – should do that they don't is you have to stay moving. People want to finish a race and especially a long one. Um, and just like lay on a couch or go to sleep it is the worst thing you can do. Cause you're going to wake up and like not be able to move anything. So I generally try and stay walking. I try and stay active. Um, you know, I will hop again on like a foam roller or something like that and try You don't want to be too aggressive afterwards. Like you're not going to like hop on a softball and roll out your glutes because like that's going to hurt really bad. Um, but then just, just try and stay 
active. And that is in like the next day too, you know, like gentle movement and things like that. Um, do you use, do you, are you a proponent of ice, ice baths, anything like that or not? If I can't, so I mean, look, I'm not a scientist, whatever. I, all I know is what works for me (laughs) and uh, people have different opinions. If I can get into an ice bath, I will, but it needs to be like immediately. So there have been races where there's like a lake right next to me. And I'm like, if it's cold enough, then I'll just go jump in the lake and kind of use that as an ice bath. But if you're waiting like four or five hours, I don't really think it's going to end up helping you in the end. And, uh, I want you to correct me if if I'm wrong. 2012 Mm -hmm. world's toughest mutter. How did you place? Uh, I won for females, but I was second overall in 2012. Second place overall. Yeah. How did that feel? So it was a really interesting race. Um, How many competitors? This was, again, there were about 1,200 people, I believe, is, is generally every year. Um, so there are about 1,200 people. Uh, it was once, this one, they moved it to November. So it was supposedly a tiny bit warmer, but actually it wasn't. It was actually colder in 2012 than it was in 2011. Um, and, uh, I guess I didn't realize I knew I was winning for women. And at this point we were about 24 hours or getting close to the end. And I was uh, about 80 some odd miles in. And, uh, as on the last lap, they're like, okay, well you've won for women, but the guy that's winning is like nine minutes ahead of you. So we're on this last lap, um, you know, going, we'll end up with 90 miles and, there are all these people from Tough Mudder headquarters and like all these matters just like yelling at me, willing me to go on because all they want me to do is to win overall, you know? And you're so tired at that point and like so kind of delirious that I guess I didn't even realize like the import of that situation and like how massive that would have been. Um, Cause I was just like, leave me alone. I hurt. I'm tired. <laughs> I hear I'm you. Freezing. <laughs> like I'm covered in like 10 like millimeters of neoprene. Like I'm just, you know, and I'm like, I get it. I'm trying to move faster. My body won't let me. Um, but yeah, so I ended up finishing about nine minutes behind the male overall winner. Um, and, uh, yeah, so it was pretty, I, it didn't really hit me until like a day or two later where I was like, Oh, I was that close. Oh, okay. <laughs> Mike Burbiglia at Burbigs, B-I-R-B-I-G-S on Twitter, (laughs) say hi, is uh, one of my favorite comedians, certainly one of the best known and busiest comedians in the world, uh, both behind and in front of the camera. His stand-up blends elements of theater, film, storytelling, and comedy. The guy just seems unstoppable. He's been very deliberate in studying a lot of crafts and tying them together, uh, which I find fascinating. It's reflected in a lot of his successes, so sold-out tours as a solo act, uh, New York Times bestselling books, off-Broadway shows, feature film, TV, the whole nine. I asked Mike about his nighttime rituals, and he, in fact, is famous for very, very severe sleepwalking disorders. I find the Fitbit was helpful for me mm-hmm. <laughs> because it tracks my sleep. And so it, it tells me this thing about my sleep, which tells I tells you how sleep. much you were walking the night before. <laughs> no, it's true. It's true. I mean, it tells me it not only tell, I don't know if you know about this. It not only tells you, um, wh- you know, how you, you know, wh- how long you slept, but it tells you the quality of sleep during mm-hmm. 
you know, in other words, like it, it tells you, you know, you slept technically for eight hours, but you, you know, you were awake for an hour of that. So it, it's actually quite helpful. I like it. So you use it primarily for your sleep then? I, for my sleep. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I like the steps thing. I like trying to get to 10,000 steps a day. That's helpful. But for the sleep, I mean, cause you got to remember, like I I've, I've slept over at hospitals, you know, countless times for sleep studies. Cause I have REM behavior disorder and it's like $3,000 per visit to, I mean, obviously, you know, some of it's insurance, but some of it I have to pay. And it, it, I mean, this thing basically does a sleep study and it costs a hundred bucks. What, uh, what's, what type of nighttime rituals do you have? I mean, you mentioned easing in instead of crashing into the wall. Yeah. Uh, do you, do you have any particular kind of wind down or evening rituals? I try to do there. There's a, actually a good podcast called, uh, not to be mistaken with sleepwalk with me. There's a good podcast called sleep with me. <laughs> um, I could go a lot of directions. Okay. Yes. And it's this guy named, I think he, he calls himself scooter and he <laughs> sounds trustworthy. And he, and he, uh, he has like this really uncanny skill of talking in circles and slow and a, circling back to the first topic and then the next topic and then another thing and then a digression. And the next thing you know, you're asleep. I mean, it's, it's pretty fascinating what he does. Um, I'll have to try and that. Then, um, yeah. So that, that's where, that's worth looking into. And then, um, and then I try to write in my journal and then I, honestly, the biggest thing is, 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 is getting off of social media. It's, you know, getting, getting off of Twitter and Facebook. I think, you know, in relationship to what we were talking about earlier of like, I was saying the thing about Oliver Stone that he, he joined the army and became, that's how he became self-reliant and how ultimately like everything in your life that you do leads to who you are and what you're able to accomplish. Um, I think that social media is weirdly the exception to that. I think that social media is like this weird kind of looking in the mirror all the time um, thing that is, it's, it's not helpful for, for being productive or, or, or learning. I, I don't, I, I mean, I, I, I don't know if that's true, but that, that's been my feeling lately. I think the, the dose makes the poison. Certainly. I mean, I think yes. there's, there's a point where you're like, Oh, this Tylenol is helping my headache. And then, Oh, I, my stomach lining just fell out of my ass. Or, <laughs> and, that's extreme. <laughs> <laughs> I think that I, happened. <laughs> no, I mean that that hasn't actually literally happened to me, but there's <laughs> there's definitely a, a point where you know things in excess become their opposite. Uh, what is the on the flip side? Uh, the first kind of sixty to one hundred and twenty minutes of your day look like. I mean, are there any particular rituals that you have in the morning? It's a little bit like memento every day. Um, Inject, like, injecting your wife with insulin over and over again. <laughs> it's just like a lot of times if I'm not focused, um, I will kind of wander and, and, you know, it's all until I have coffee, forget about it. I'm a heavy coffee drinker. And, um, and if I'm on a pro basically if I'm on a project, if I'm shooting a movie, I have a complete and exact plan for the next day. And if I'm writing a movie, like I said, and I, I've looked and put notes next to my bed. You, Mike, wake up, go go to the coffee shop and write. Um, 
I think that when I don't have a routine, I'm a mess and I'm not productive and it's not, it's not helpful. Um, so that, so that's what I'd say. It's, it's inconsistent. And the other thing is I travel. I mean, with the thank God for jokes show, I toured a hundred cities in a year. And so it's, it's very hard to have rituals when you're going to a hundred cities in a year. Yeah. I wonder if it makes the value of the rituals even greater. If you are able to maintain some semblance of routine when touring, yeah. I don't know. I've never done that. Do you have, do you have a favorite venue in the entire United States? If you had to pick one? Oh gosh, there's so many. I mean, the upper citizens brigade theater in New York city, it feels like home because I've been on that stage a lot. And the comedy cellar in New York feels similarly. Um, I think that in terms of like a pound for pound venue, I think the Chicago theater is probably your best concert venue in America. Mm. Chicago theater seats about 3000 people. And yet as a performer, you feel like you're talking to people in your living room. And as an audience member, it feels like you're just, you know, you're just, you're just watching, you know, someone not in your living room, but sort of, you know, in, it feels intimate. So you are, you're a collector of good advice. What is the worst advice that you hear or see being given out often? And that could be in any domain. Could be comedy, could be writing, could be movies, could be completely unrelated, anything. Uh, it's all about, <laughs> you know, it's all about getting your dream, pursuing your dream. Like, I feel like there's something, I, I don't know what the exact advice is that drives me crazy, but I think that there's a cultural thing right now that it, it is kind of irksome, which is that, that people feel like they're like, I, I read it recently in the New York times where someone said, um, I'm forgetting her name who wrote this, but she said, if I had advice for college students, it would be, don't ask, what do I want to be when I grow up? Ask, how can I help or how can I change the world? Or how can I make be of service to other people? And I think that the, the, the kind of like just kind of be whatever you want to be is, is perhaps to be reconsidered by how can I be of service when I'm on the earth for such a short amount of time. Okay, so way back in episode 50, seems like 100 years ago or yesterday, depending on my frame of mind, I introduced you to Dr. Peter Atia, who on Twitter is at Peter Atia, A-T-T-I-A-M-D. So at Peter Atia, M-D on the Twitters. Uh, Peter is an ultra-endurance athlete. He would say former. I was never an athlete, but he, he swam 25-mile-plus races. So I would consider him an endurance athlete. He's a compulsive self-experimenter, which is part of why we get along so well. And uh, one of the most fascinating human beings I know. If you want to hear a hilarious story, by the way, uh, look up Peter Atia, Jet Fuel, Ferris. And you can listen to an audio snippet of the first time that he consumed uh, experimental synthetic ketones uh, in his kitchen. Uh, It is a hilarious story. Anyway, Peter earned his MD from Stanford University and holds a uh, Bachelor's of Science in Mechanical Engineering and Applied Mathematics from Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, Canada. Uh, He resided at Johns Hopkins Hospital as a general surgeon, then conducted research at the National Cancer Institute under Dr. Steve Rosenberg, where Peter focused on the regulatory, excuse me, the role 
of regulatory T-cells in cancer regression and other immune-based therapies for cancer. Given his expertise in nearly all things health, I asked Peter to explain some of what he's most excited about as it relates to recovery. It's possible to try to optimize health to the point where it's it's in your best interest to just kind of sit in the metal box and uh, absolve yourself of interacting with anything in life. And I think that you maximize your performance at the same time. So what are some of your obsessions in that realm at the moment or interests? Well, uh, growing up, Tim, you know, I grew up in Canada. Um, and so obviously hockey was sort of the most important sport for any good Canadian kid growing up. But actually pretty early on, around the age of 13, um, my interest actually shifted towards uh, boxing and martial arts. And that became really the focus of my life. And, you know, I never really did it in moderation. So even in high school, I was sort of training six hours a day, uh, very, very hard, even though in amateur boxing, it's only three rounds. I was always thinking about, you know, the next step, which was being a professional. And of course, at the time, that's, you know, 12 rounds of boxing. So everything I did was geared towards, you know, I had to run 10 to 15 miles in the morning, not just four. I had to jump rope for 30 minutes, not just 15 and had to spend this many hours sparring each day. And so my, my foray into the under, or the, you know, my care about the body's performance always came through the lens of performance, right? Mm -hmm. So it was, how does, you know, what I, how do, how, how does the way I train or how does the way I eat impact my performance initially in a boxing ring? Mm -hmm. Now at the time it was highly crude, right? In fact, I suffered from the issue that I'm sure a lot of 14 year old boys suffered from, which we'd all kill to have that problem again, which is I actually couldn't gain weight, right? <laughs> I mean, I was, you know, I started my career at 127 pounds. By the time I was 16, I was a solid middleweight, which is 160 pounds. But as you, as you may know from, from your experience, most people live 10 pounds above their weight class and then come down to it. Right. But, you know, I was only 4% body fat. So I actually lived and fought at about 158 pounds. Um, and to, to keep that weight on, I would eat about six to 7,000 calories a day. Uh, just to give you an example of lunch, right? Because it was the one meal I can really remember. It was an entire loaf of bread, which is 14 pieces of bread. So that was seven sandwiches um, with a two liter jug of orange juice. And a, uh, I would, and then at the cafeteria, I would buy a plate of French fries and like some other nastiness. And like that was lunch every day in high school. And yet, you know, I had a 27 inch waist and you know, no fat on me uh, in part, not just because I was exercising six hours a day. I think more importantly, because we're very metabolically different when we're 14 year old boys than when we're 40 year old boys. <laughs> um, so if you fast forward, uh, I don't know how many years, um, you know, athletic stuff has always been important to me. The sport has shifted, you know, um, it went for, you know, by the time I was in my early twenties, the obsession switched away from, um, boxing into other things. And, and, um, more recently in my thirties, it, the, the obsession became swimming ultra, ultra long distance swimming. Um, how long is ultra long distance swimming? Yeah, it's kind of a fuzzy definition. I think most people define ultra long as anything over 16 miles. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think that's somewhat arbitrary. It's sort of like one of those things like, you know it when you see it, right? Like, hey, is this, <laughs> is this one mile river? <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? Is this one mile swim across the river ultra long? Not really. Is that 25 mile swim long? Yeah, that's ultra long. Um, <laughs> what's and, the longest swim that you've done? Uh, uh about 25 miles. That's a, that is a long swim. Um, 
So in my 30s when – and this is now a different chapter in my life. Obviously, I'm not in high school. I'm – you know, I think it's the time I'm working at McKinsey and Company in San Francisco. Um, I'm still managing to spend – an average of four hours, three to four hours every day swimming. Um, because you, it's not linear. Like I spend, you know, eight hours a day on the weekends. Um, and then maybe only an hour and a half to two hours a day, Monday through Friday. But I'm obviously, you know, burning a lot of matches. Um, and yet interestingly, my weight is getting higher and higher and higher. And I went from sort of being, you know, 170 pounds to 205 pounds. And the, uh, composition of that weight wasn't a, you know, wasn't what I wanted, right? It wasn't like I was gaining all this muscle. I mean, I was getting fat and the blood tests showed that I was basically pre-diabetic. So all of a sudden the dietary the strategy indicators that you looked at, um, you do something called an oral glucose tolerance test, which is, uh, you, you, they draw your blood and then you drink this horrible, nasty drink of glucose. And then they measure your insulin and glucose levels an hour later. And then again, two hours later. Got it. Um, coupled with other standard blood tests like your triglycerides and something called a hemoglobin A1C, which measures the amount of blood sugar that's basically sticking to your red blood cells. Is it fair to say hemoglobin A1C is sort of a running three-month average of your fasting glucose or is that completely scientifically un? No, it's, it's actually pretty close. It's not okay. fasting. It's a three-month – it's basically a three-month running average of your aggregate glucose aggregate level. Aggregate glucose. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Not the yeah, yeah. So, so, so anyway, uh, basically all of these tests were pointing in the wrong direction. I had something called metabolic syndrome. Um, and again, I think there's a lot of people that find themselves in that situation. I, you know, to your question about what's the personal motivation, I think what pissed me off was, and I remember saying this to my wife, I said, you know, what pisses me off is I'm working too hard to be in this situation, right? <laughs> like it's one thing if you're sitting on the couch eating Doritos all day long. But my diet was actually much cleaner as a 35-year-old than that French fry sandwich eating kid in high school. Um, obviously, it still wasn't the right diet. But the point is, I was busting my ass to be fit and healthy and watch what I eat. And, you know, frankly, I just got aggravated beyond words. And, you know, I mean, I, we joke about it now. But at the time, I literally said to my wife, like, I'm going to go get a gastric bypass. And she was like, <laughs> You are the most ridiculous human being that's ever lived. I mean, we're going to literally have to talk about our marriage if that's what you're considering at the at the weight of 205 pounds. I actually did go and see the top bariatrician in the city of San Diego. And it's kind of a weird story because even though I was like obviously overweight, I was the thinnest person in the waiting room by – a long shot, right? And it yeah. sort of put in perspective, like, Peter, you think you've got problems. I mean, these people each weigh 400 pounds. Right. And when I went up, when it was my turn to go and see the doctor, the nurse took me up to the scale and weighed me. And like, we got on the scale and I'm like 210. And she's like, oh, this is fantastic. Like, <laughs> are you here for follow-up? And I'm like, uh, no, I'm here for... <laughs> and so, you know, it was just... It was just a, it was it was a real eye opening experience, Tim. Because frankly, throughout my entire medical training, which was in surgery and then again in surgical oncology, which is cancer surgery, I had never paid attention to this problem. Never, you know, if it didn't have to do with cancer, if it didn't have to do with hepatobiliary surgery, I didn't care. Hmm. And so, you know, orthorexia is used as a, as a as a derogatory term, but I think you're you're very meticulous in in your own testing. Uh, and 
and perhaps even separate from Nusi, but you've introduced me to quite a few interesting uh, tools uh, <laughs> or concepts. For instance, the idea of synthetic ketones, and maybe you could just comment on that as as a as a taster for people. Although taste might not be the <laughs> the way to put it, you can explain that. Uh, yeah. but, but this was this was an eye opener for me, and I, I remember hanging out with you having dinner not too long ago where you spec'd out sort of the the chemical structure of uh i guess it was beta hydroxybutyrate and a number of uh, other ketone i guess it'd be salts right or am i, am I no they could they're actually salts or esters or so, esters yeah. right yeah, yeah, yeah. uh but what what are what are synthetic ketones and why might people care about them well i think to explain it i probably have to spend a minute explaining what ketones are biologically or what we call yes. endogenous ketones so um if you think back to what our ancestors were doing up until, you know, a few hundred years ago or certainly a few thousand years ago, you know, we were basically often going 24 hours or longer without food. Um, and that was just the nature of how things worked, right? And when you're in the hunter-gatherer uh, uh, mindset, that that's your life. Now, um, the, the human body has only really evolved to store a finite amount of glucose. Uh, and there's only two places we store glucose. One is in the liver. One is in the muscles. Um, and it's only that stash in the liver that's accessible by the brain because the glucose that gets stored in the muscle can't leave the muscle. It, it circulates within the muscle. So we have this organ, the brain, which you know weighs maybe 2% of our overall body weight but probably accounts for 20% of our body's metabolic demand. And on top of that, it ordinarily functions exclusively on glucose. And so you have this problem, which is you have an organism that is wildly dependent on glucose and we can only store a fraction of what we need. We can only store about one day's worth. About 400, so, 400 grams, like 1,600 calories? It really depends on the size of the person. But yeah, right. that's, that's probably about right for average. And remember, most of that, by the way, is not accessible to the whole body. Right. It's, yeah. So – so the, the trick that we evolved was um, rather than make glucose out of protein, which is a pretty easy thing to do, the problem with that is if you want to make glucose out of protein, you have to break down muscle. And the last thing you want to do when you're out there trying to find your next meal is lose muscle at, in, at the expense of getting glucose for your brain. So what if there was a way we could get the brain to use fat? right? That's, that's the problem that needed to be solved. And the solution was a beautiful one, right? Which is we can break down fat of which even the leanest hunter gatherer had days and days, if not months of fat on their body. What if you could break that fat down in the liver into another type of molecule distinct from glucose that the brain specifically could actually utilize as fuel? And that's where ketones enter. And so what, what our bodies do when prolonged fasting occurs, and by prolonged, I really mean it even begins at 24 hours of fasting, is we start breaking down our own sources of fat. We start making this thing you referred to, beta-hydroxybutyrate, that not to get too geeky on it, but beta-hydroxybutyrate and another member of that family called acetoacetate, they exist in an equilibrium. And these things get shuttled into the Krebs cycle, which I think your readers, your readers will be familiar with. Um, and it basically becomes another substrate for making ATP. And so all of a sudden, and George Cahill, who is sort of a luminary in this field, passed away a few years ago. But George Cahill is one of the sort of the, the leading godfathers in metabolism at Harvard University. Um, he did some legendary experiments um, in the 50s and 60s where they, you know, they had subjects that they would starve for 7 to 14 days and just measure glucose levels and ketone levels. And you'd think that after 14 days of not eating, a person would be 
you know, mentally foggy, not well. And it turned out it was just the opposite, right? After a couple day lull, and you know this personally, Tim, because you've done these long fasts. Right. After a couple days of hell, it's actually the reverse, right? You, you sort of get sharp. Yeah, yeah, you feel unbelievable. And and what Cahill showed was, you know, what fraction of the brain's energy was coming from those ketones. So, okay, so that's relevant. That's starving. But look, outside of the odd, you know, let's do a one week a year fast sort of thing. How does that play into something beyond that? Well, the other way you can achieve ketosis, though not to the same extreme, is through something called nutritional ketosis, which is restricting the one dietary component primarily that restricts ketone formation and keeping at a minimum the other one that also restricts it. And those are carbohydrates and proteins respectively. And so if you eat a diet that has very little carbohydrate in it and only a modest amount of protein – um, and the rest of it, of course, made up from fat, you can also generate ketones. Now, to your question, it turns out that you can drink or you know, consume in some fashion, but they're all typically liquid. You can drink these ketone molecules directly. And that's what we call these exogenous or supplemental ketones. And they come in multiple different forms. They basically exist in as a beta-hydroxybutyrate ester, a beta-hydroxybutyrate salt, and an acetoacetate diester. Um, and I've tried all of these things and I can safely why don't you say, t- tell people, yeah. why don't you recount your first experience? Consuming yes. These. So the first, the first one I tried was the beta, beta hydroxybutyrate ester, which a very good friend of mine, um, uh, sent me and I had been told these things taste horrible that I had talked to two people who had consumed the vor and these are stoic dudes. Like these aren't, you know, this isn't like a six-year-old kid, right? This is like stoic military dudes who said, oh man, that's the worst tasting stuff on earth. And, and so I knew that, but I think that piece of information was sort of like fleeting in the excitement when the box came. And so I tear open the box and also there was a note in there that explained a somewhat palatable cocktail that you could like, you know, mix that, like how you could mix this with 10 other things. And I just disregarded that. And I just took out like the 50 milliliter flask and I chugged it and I remember it was like six in the morning because my wife was still sleeping and you know all these thoughts go through your mind so first of all you drink it and it tasted like like how I imagine jet fuel or diesel would taste (laughs) you know if you've ever smelled distillate it's this horrible odor and you can sort of imagine what it would taste like this is what it tasted like and so my first thought was God damn, like, what if I go blind? Like, what if there's like methanol in here? Like, what did I just do? And then my next thought was just, oh my God, you're gagging. I mean, you're really gagging. And now if you puke this stuff up, you're going to have to like lick up your puke and this stuff. I mean, it's just going to be a disaster, right? And so I'm like retching and gagging and like trying not to wake up the family and trying not to like <laughs> spew my ketone esters all over the kitchen. And it took like 20 minutes for me to get out and do my bike ride, which was the whole purpose of that experiment. Must have been a record setter. <laughs> oh, God. It was um, – those things are unbearable. Well, there you have it, kiddos. I hope you found these tips as helpful as I did and that your sleep benefits from them. If there are other topics, other themes you'd like me to piece together by going back into all of my episodes and trying to find specific patterns, please let me know on Twitter, at T. Ferris. That is Twitter. 
I don't know why I'm doing that this episode, but I like it. Twitter.com forward slash T Ferris, T F E R R I S S. Or you can leave comments on the blog post associated with this podcast. You can find show notes for this one and every other podcast I've done at tim.blog forward slash podcast. And until next time, as always, thank you for listening. And oyasuminasai. Hey guys, this is Tim again. Just a few more things before you take off. Number one, this is Five Bullet Friday. Do you want to get a short email from me? Would you enjoy getting a short email from me every Friday that provides a little morsel of fun before the weekend? And Five Bullet Friday is a very short email where I share the coolest things I've found or that I've been pondering over the week. That could include favorite new albums that I've discovered. It could include gizmos and gadgets and all sorts of weird shit that I've somehow dug up in the uh, the world of the esoteric as I do. It could include favorite articles that I've read and that I've shared with my close friends, for instance. And it's very short. It's just a little tiny bite of goodness before you head off for the weekend. So if you want to receive that, check it out. Just go to fourhourworkweek.com. That's fourhourworkweek.com all spelled out and just drop in your email and you will get the very next one. And if you sign up, I hope you enjoy it. This episode is brought to you by Movement Watches, and that is spelled M-V-M-T, Movement Watches. I first became aware of this company back in 2014 when they were brand, brand new baby company because they won first place in Shopify's Build a Business competition. The founders are two college dropouts who wanted to wear fancy watches but had one wee little problem. They couldn't afford fancy watches, so they decided to scratch their own itch. Since then, their high-quality, affordable watches have gone from startup to more than 1 million watches sold across 160 countries. It's an awesome success story, and when you check out the product, you'll know why. They offer classic design, quality construction, and many different modern styles, so you can really pick one that suits you. You might want to start one, I would suggest, probably appeal to a lot of folks out there, is the classic black silver. So search classic black silver. The guys at Movement have a great offer for listeners of this podcast. They're offering 15% off your entire purchase with free shipping and free returns if you're dissatisfied for any reason. And they are very, very famous for their customer support. Just visit movementwatches.com forward slash Tim. That's M-V-M-T watches.com forward slash Tim. This episode is brought to you by Soothe.com, the largest on-demand massage service in the world. Now, I've been broken so many times. I've had so many injuries from sports. I have body work done at least once a week. So I have a very, very high bar for this kind of stuff, a very, very high quality control. And I was very skeptical of something that purported to be the Uber for massages, and I was blown away. I cannot tell you how surprised I was and continue to be impressed by how high the level of massage therapist and body worker is through Soothe. They deliver hand-selected, licensed, and experienced massage therapists to you in the comfort of your own home, hotel, or office in as little as an hour. I've used them in San Francisco. I've used them in Austin. I've used them in New York. I've used them all over. 
And you can, again, think of it as Uber for massages. It is available in 50 cities worldwide. The process is super simple. You choose the kind of massage you want, say Swedish or sport or deep tissue. You can even opt for a couple's massage. Then you set the length, the gender, and you request. Next thing you know, Suze shows up where you want them with everything you need. They bring the massage table, sheets, oil, even music. So you don't have to worry about it. You can unwind and chill. Suze is in 50 cities, including most major US cities in London, Sydney, Melbourne, Toronto, Vancouver, and more on the way. So step number one, download Soothe. That's S-O-O-T-H-E in the iOS App Store or Google Play Store and use code TIM, T-I-M, to get $20 off of each of your first two massages that you book. So download Soothe, S-O-O-T-H-E, and then use code TIM.